Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by Scott Walker, the president of the Young Americas Foundation and the former governor of Wisconsin. Walker served two terms as governor from 2011 to 2019 and defeated an attempted recall in 2012. He formerly served as Milwaukee County Executive and in the Wisconsin State Assembly. Now as president of YAF, Walker leads a national organization that teaches the principles of conservatism to the next generation. Roger and Governor Walker discuss Ronald Reagan, free speech on college campuses, and Wisconsin politics. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Governor Scott Walker, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, I feel like the Reagan Institute coming to you now, uh, a proud Reaganite who's leading YAF, Young America's Foundation, is uh, a proper thing to do and and unifying organizations I know would make President Reagan proud. Oh, absolutely. He wanted the conservative movement to work together. And I got to tell you, one of my proudest moments was when uh, uh, former First Lady Nancy Reagan invited me back in 2012 after I'd gone through a recall battle to come and speak at the library. Uh, just such a thrill for someone who's who's been a lifelong fan of uh, the president, and Mrs. Reagan. Well, we'll talk a little bit about your time as governor, and certainly I'd let you know that you can go to the library today and your picture's still up there speaking to the uh, Reagan Library. So that I know was memorable for everybody over there. But let, let's go back before you were governor and tell us about your, you know, grew up in, in Iowa and then uh, obviously moved to Wisconsin and worked up through the state ranks. How did Reagan and, and your political life kind of come together and, and take on that very significant political role? Yeah, my dad was a preacher, and so we moved around a bit. I was actually born in Colorado Springs when he was an assistant pastor out there, spent most of my early childhood in Plainfield, Iowa where our state rep at the time was a guy named Chuck Grassley, who at the time was just a farmer uh, down the <laughs> obviously now a great U.S. senator. His grandson, Patrick, is now the speaker and represents that area. We lived in a small town, about 450, and I still remember watching with my dad when I was a kid, the 1976 convention, and in particular just being blown away uh, by then former Governor Ronald Reagan and I think a lot of the delegates when he came up to the podium and spoke at the request of President Ford, a lot of the delegates looked around uh, as we did in our own home, thinking, man, they just nominated the wrong guy. Uh, but, but going into the 80s, uh, we moved in 77 uh, to uh, a small town as well, Delavan, Wisconsin, and uh, just loved Ronald Reagan. Uh, I don't know how we got away with it, but uh, we lived, my dad was a pastor, as I mentioned, we lived in a parsonage, which means the church owned the home but I was such a Reagan fan. I, I don't know, again, how they let me do this, but I, I put a sign on our front door that I handmade that said, 
why not an actor for president? We've had a clown for the last four years, uh, but I was into it even at a young age. And uh, probably more than anything, uh, beyond just moments like that, uh, I came of age like so many others did under President Reagan. And I'm not just a conservative or even a Republican because of him. I'm an optimist. And I got to tell you, that's something that I love being at the ranch. I love being at the library. Next week, I'm going to be in Dixon at President Reagan's boyhood home. All those experiences are just great reminders, not so much of nostalgia, but of that vision. He was always looking forward. He was always ahead of his time, uh, whether it was fighting communism, whether it was talking about tax relief, whether it was just talking about good, solid, common sense, conservative ideas, but in an aspirational way. And uh, certainly we not only yearn for that, we hope to inspire a next generation to take on that kind of reagan view of the world. Well, we'll talk about your work for the next generation. I have to be honest, I've, I've been struck by the fact that you knew or knew of Chuck Grassley before he was a senator. You look too young to even have that memory. Of course, he's considering, perhaps expecting to run for re-election, and he was just, as you probably saw, doing push-ups at a press conference with, with Tom Cotton. That was that was impressive. Um, you know, you, you note the optimism of, of President Reagan and and a lot of people say that wistfully, in a wistful way now, almost like we've lost it. Why have we lost that sense of optimism? As an elected official, and you certainly had your battles, we'll talk about it in a minute, is it hard to be optimistic uh, because of the challenge we face? Is it hard because the political consultants just want to tell you all the time it's easier to go negative? Tell me about the place optimism in American politics today? Does it have a future? Absolutely, it does. I am an optimist. Like I said, I'm a child of, of Reagan. And so I have that, uh, uh, I think, eternal optimism in the American people. It's easy to get down if you live in the bubble, uh, whether it's in Washington, D.C. or in any number of the 50 state houses. It's easy to be negative if you just spend all day looking at Twitter or other social media or listening to some of the folks on either end of the spectrum on some of our cable news channels. But the thing, the takeaway I learned as a kid watching Reagan and tried to do as an elected official and, and tried, tried to still do today is get out of the bubble. Get out and see the American people. The people of this country are far more optimistic when you look at people rolling up their sleeves, helping each other. I, I remember years ago, I, I was in uh, Tomahawk, Wisconsin, north central part of the state of Wisconsin, and there had just been a big tornado that came through in it. It almost looked like somebody took a, a hedge clipper and just ripped off a bunch of the roofs off of the homes there. And so I came in, I heard all these noises, and I said, what's going on? And they said, well, all these pickup trucks uh, were coming in, and, and most of them were, were not even neighbors or friends of the people who lived in that, that little area in Tomahawk. It was all these people who had come because they heard about the tornado, and they just were volunteering to help people who were in need. When you get out like Reagan did so often, when you get out around the country and you talk to people, I do think there's a sense of optimism. we got to get off our phones. we got to get out of obsession with the news and instead talk to the American people. That's something Reagan did so well. And clear your mind is why he so often spent time at the ranch. It was a great, great way to get away uh, from the swamp and, and get reconnected to freedom uh, that was so much a part of his life. Yeah, Reagan country for sure. Uh, you're right. I mean, the cable news, whatever your favorite channel is, it's just a few million people in a country of... 330 million plus. Great point. Um, I want to talk about your leadership of YAF and, and the long game campaign. 
I don't know if you call it a campaign. That was my words. But, you know, when I was looking at the connection between President Reagan and Yaf, and it was a deep connection throughout his time in the White House, before his time in the White House, one of the things that I, I thought was remarkable was leading up to President Reagan's run for the presidency in 76, when you were putting up that sign in your home <laughs> in Wisconsin, um, Yaf sponsored his radio addresses. And I don't know if you know much about those addresses. Um, what's great about them, the ones I've listened to and talked to other scholars, is that it reflects the deep thinking uh, that Reagan had developed from his time, really uh, throughout his career, certainly after 1964. Um, I just thought it's remarkable that Yaf wanted to invest in it and, and provided the medium of the day, which was radio and TV, but here radio, to get his voice out. Tell me more about that and, and perhaps from there, move to what Yaf is doing today to get its voice out as well. And certainly they made a great decision having you lead the organization. Well, thanks. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, William F. Buckley, an icon of the conservative movement, someone who is very much aligned with Barry Goldwater and, and Ronald Reagan and other greats in the conservative movement. Uh, he started YAF at his home in 1960, of all days, September 11, 1960, in Sharon, Connecticut, brought together about 100 college students, uh, talking at the time, going through very, uh, very challenging times, one of the closest presidential elections on the verge of war, all these challenges in college campuses sounds a lot like today. Two years later, Ronald Reagan, before he was even in public life, uh, joined as a part of the National Advisory Board for YAF and eventually became the chair of that uh, throughout his time as, as governor, uh, between the time of being governor and running for president. As you mentioned, YAF uh, was the sponsor for his radio address. And even during his eight years as president, he always had the National Conservative Student Conference at the White House. Um, really a strong connection. It's why years later when Mrs. Reagan was looking to sell off the, the Reagan Ranch, it was a natural fit uh, for you have to step up and, and play a role in purchasing and, and now running it and having it exactly the way it was uh, the day they walked out. Uh, quite remarkable. But but you, you look at all that and just such a great connection, but specifically per your question uh, about radio, yeah, you could hear not only his optimism, but as you know, and I know at the records, uh, at the library, um, we see in the research that's been done by any number of groups and in many of the books that have been written, for all the hype at the time, and thankfully not so much so more uh, these days from uh, from many in the media, but back then in the 80s, you know, they were attacking him, late night was attacking him, they were like, oh, he's just some actor. But the truth be told, you look back to his writings and particularly his radio addresses, this is someone who had thought big thoughts, oftentimes actually uh, from post 74 on, on his trips to and from the ranch, which is a bit of a ride up from uh, from the LA area up to the mountain, uh, the mountaintop, the tip top, uh, where Rancho del Saleo is at. Um, and he really thought about things. When, when he gave that speech at the Brandenburg Gate, for example, tear down this wall, right. uh, that was something that wasn't just momentary. He'd, he'd spent years thinking about the problem of communism. He'd spent years thinking about economic freedom when he gave the speech in 64 for Barry Goldwater. This was someone who knew exactly uh, where he was headed and how to get there. And that's something we try to inspire young people with. It's not all about Reagan, but it's a big part of it, obviously because of the ranch. But we try to inspire that kind of the same principles, strong national defense, individual liberties, um, free enterprise, traditional conservative values, and not only inspire young people to take on the ideas that Reagan stood for, 
But to, to look at the way he communicated and to share them in ways that were bold and, and courageous, but also decent and aspirational. Decent and aspirational, uh, that's exactly right. And perhaps that's what we've lost. Uh, you look at the Sharon statement, which you've uh, referenced earlier, and you, it's, it's amazing how much of that is still resonates. All of it uh, is important today. Let's move to college campuses because that's really the essence of what YAF is doing and under your leadership. Um, tell us about the long game and also just tell us what you're seeing when you travel around the country and engage with students. Is it all what we see on social media, you know, just the cancel culture wars and students shouting at each other? Or is there other stuff going on as well where we're truly having conversations and bringing people along? Uh, give us a little feel of, of what you're seeing and what you're doing. Yeah, it's a bit of both. Uh, so the, the movement started in college campuses back in the 90s. We started to move into high school. Part of our long game plan, I, I came in in February, right around the time of Reagan's birthday. About a month later, we rolled out this new 12-point action plan called the long game of folks or interest actually didn't go get a copy of it, yaf.org slash long game. But in the notes. Yeah, it's more than a, a white paper. It's really about uh, the idea of saying, we've got to aggressively take action here because what we do see is this sense of cancel culture. You know, we were younger, certainly there was liberal bias has been for decades on our college campuses, but it's a lot different than just liberal bias. Right now, this cancel culture is where not all, but many of our campuses, conservative voices, whether it's students, speakers, even occasionally an educator, or really the, the attempt is made to just drown that out entirely. We've seen that with some of our, our recent free speech battles where they just, they don't want conservative right of center voices to be heard at all. And I don't just mean the big names that are causing controversy. Heck, one of our great speakers is someone you know well, Art Laffer. Dr. Laffer was an economic advisor for President Reagan. Father uh, of the Laffer curve. I mean, this exactly. is, I mean, this this is guy's supply 80. side economics. He's about as decent and honorable as you can get. He's well-credentialed. And yet one of the colleges in New York State, uh, not too long ago when he came to speak uh, as a YAF speaker, uh, literally agitators came and, and shut him down before he could even say more than a word or two at the microphone. And the local, the college administrators and, and the, the security that worked for them, instead of escorting out the agitators, took him off the stage uh, supposedly for his protection. The re reality is there we're running into that all over the country. That's wrong. We will fight not only for our speakers, but for any conservative voices, any right of center voices on any campus or any school for that matter in the nation, because it's it's a part of the, the Constitution. It is guaranteed uh, free speech rights, but it should be revered on our college campuses. So yeah, that's a real battle. That's legitimate. When people talk about cancel culture, that's really happening. Now, the flip side of that is, and I've spoke uh, on a number of campuses even before I was president for YAF, and, and that is once you do get there, in some ways, all the agitators drawing controversy, if you can be heard, there really is good dialogue going on. Uh, one of our uh, great uh, speakers who who works ex exclusively with Young America's Foundation on campuses is Ben Shapiro, a popular name. Sure. Well, well, Ben creates a big crowd, a big ruckus, but his general rule of thumb is if, if you're someone who opposes his point of view, he says, raise your hand and you can move to the front of the line. That's the kind of dialogue we need. He systematically, in many ways, takes a cue from Ronald Reagan and just goes through and listens to people uh, listens to what they're saying, pushes back on the points he feels strongly on. And so I do think we're having an impact. I, I I'm, glad, I'm glad you raised that because, you know, 
I'm all for what you're describing that we need to fight for free speech. And if it's being suppressed, we need to be there uh, because if you don't fight for it, you'll lose it. There's a lot of Reagan in that. But at the same time, some of the most compelling videos of Reagan I've seen, uh, you've probably seen it as well. You, it's a, a young Reagan going on a college campus. Yeah. You know, Reagan was one of the, one of the only elected presidents you know, to, to go on a college campus. It was really him and, and JFK. But this is video before that, before he was president. And you see him engage with the students. You actually see them talk substance. They're not posturing you know, to see who can get the best social media video of someone being escorted out because they don't tolerate free speech. They're actually debating uh, policy and the ideas that this country was founded. That's compelling. Are we getting enough of those clips out there? You know, sometimes you mentioned Ben Shapiro. Sometimes it's really interesting, you know, compelling when you see him engage with someone who disagrees with him. And he does it in a entertaining, uh, sometimes self-deprecating, but effective way. Do we need more of those clips, too, going on social media? Oh, absolutely. And one of the most encouraging things, it actually parallels the work that YAF did sponsoring Reagan's radio addresses. Now, one of our most effective tools, it's part of our long game, is uh, we have a YAF TV is our channel on YouTube. And we saw in the last year, as we saw the shutdown on college campuses, we kind of took the best of Shapiro, Michael Knowles, uh, Alicia Krauss, uh, Dinesh D'Souza, um, you name it, uh, Katie Pavlik, all sorts of great speakers we've had on campuses. And we put them up some of the best of, not just in the speeches they gave, but to your point, the Q&A that they took uh, on campus, which our speakers do time and time again. And we saw our numbers on YouTube just skyrocket to where we have over a half a million subscribers. One of our goals in the long game is to actually get to 5 million subscribers and a billion views out there. And one of the things I'm optimistic about with YouTube is it's not programmed. You know, these are not like TV channels. This is not pre-programmed um, entertainment. This is content we take from speakers on campuses taking the Q&A. And I think our students and even some others, not just necessarily students, uh, just people in general are interested because they want to know, how do I have a dialogue with someone yes who doesn't just disagree with who hates me, who professes to hate me. And I'd like to see more of that. And I think that's what Reagan tried to communicate both on campus uh, and certainly in those radio addresses. Well, that's a great goal. And I think that engagement uh, is very compelling as just one viewer out there. Uh, of course, we're sitting here in July. Recently, uh, we celebrated our independence. Uh, you wrote an op-ed as you do regularly for the Washington Times, uh, a great read for everybody listening and watching, look out for it. Uh, and here was about really where the American people and love of country was, was a subject. And you had some polling numbers. Some of it was reassuring, uh, but there was also troubling too. Um, you start off saying the good news is, is that an overwhelming majority of adults, 68% are very extremely proud to be an American, but then you go, and really goes to the core mission that we're discussing of YAF, only 36% of those aged 18 to 24 said that they were extremely or very proud. What's going on here? Uh, is it just the way we're asking the question or is your experience going around the country uh, reflective that you know young people don't have that feeling of informed patriotism that President Reagan obviously spoke so much about? No, I think you're exactly right. In fact, and he, again, so prolific, 
way ahead of his time. Remember in January of 1989, right before he left his last address in the Oval Office, he really gave us a warning. He didn't just do a pat on the back for the last eight years and renewing the American spirit. He said, you know, we need to go back to teaching American history and shared civic ritual. And uh, I thought a lot about that lately, particularly earlier this year when the owner of the Dallas Mavericks talked about not playing the national anthem anymore before games. Now they retreated from that, but that's one of those shared civic rituals. I think President Reagan was talking about that when we were kids, it didn't matter whether you were Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, black or white, the flag, standing for the flag, singing the national anthem. Those were shared civic rituals because of, of shared beliefs and freedom and opportunity for everyone. And we've slipped away from that. Part of that is, I think, particularly with younger people, is there's this sense, not only in colleges and universities, but increasingly, even in K through 12 education, some of the things that are being taught, um, you know, people talk a lot about critical race theory. I call it state-sanctioned racism. I, I firmly believe we need to learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly. We need to learn about everything in American history. Uh, I certainly, as a kid, learned about the problems with racism and slavery and the civil rights movements and civil war and all those things. So I'm not saying we should ignore those, uh, but we cannot be learning that in the context of saying one race or the other is solely responsible for that. So I, I, I can see where you only have 36% of 18 to 24 year olds saying they're extremely very proud to be Americans, which is interesting because not only the rest of the population is completely the flip of that, uh, but even in that survey, when you ask, are you not proud? Uh, only 6% of Americans overall as adults said that. But interestingly, only 7% of, of black respondents and only about the same when it came to Hispanic respondents. So all this national talk about that isn't affecting the general population. What it's affecting are those younger people. So yes, we need to teach objective American history. That means everything. You know, Our founders, incredible idea, the promise that we declared uh, in our Declaration of Independence, incredibly important today as it was then. Were all the people involved in our nation's history perfect? No, none of us are perfect. Last right. perfect person I knew of hasn't been on the earth in 2,000 years. Well, and our founding documents it. contemplate that in the form yeah. of saying we're seeking to form a more perfect union. There was never this notion that it was created in perfection, but our founding documents have a framework, have a system that allows us to drive towards that more perfect union. Um, you know, one of the things that you were talking about this really eye-opening number that only 36% from the age of 18 to 24 say they are extremely or very proud of America, being an American. Me, it seems like it's something we can reverse because when President Reagan left office and on this podcast and show, we've, we've just mentioned this on occasion, but I think it's worth repeating. When he left office and he was, by all accounts, an old man, right? This is, you know, uh, by 1988, but his numbers in the demographic between 18 and 30, so it's not 18 to 24 like you cite in the Washington Times piece, he had over 80% support from that demographic. Old person having support from young people. And when you read his writings and you talk to scholars, at least if you listen to Reagan, it's because he emphasized two things, freedom and the future. Are we not focusing on our future enough with young people? I'm talking about elected leaders, both on the left and on the right. And are we not doing enough to emphasize freedom for our young people? Because regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, whether you're a card-carrying YAF member or someone who would sit outside 
a YAF event and say, you know, don't go inside and protest. Don't they all want freedom? I think too. I think we do. We as human beings yearn for that. Uh, that's why these rights were endowed by our, our creator. We, these are things that, that are part of our inner being. It's part of who we are. Um, and uh, I think Reagan, again, aspirational. He was always looking ahead. He was always looking outside of the role of government, outside of the, the halls of power, and rather looking at the American people and just having this eternal optimism, this belief that the American people were good and decent and honorable, and if given the chance, given more freedoms and more opportunities, uh, we'd all be far better into the future. And so, yeah, I think part of the challenge, I mentioned that with, with cable news and, and social media, and you're right that one of the other data points I point out, for example, with Twitter, you listen to many in the media, you'd think Twitter dominates everything. Uh, Pew Research does a study every year. I think they show on average about 22% of all Americans, 22%, uh, just that number on Twitter. And of those people on Twitter, about 80% of the tweets are done by about 10% of the people. So when something's trending, that might only reflect about 3% of the overall population. So it's good to get out of that bubble, good to get out to where people are living their lives and talk about it. People do yearn for freedom and opportunity. Heck, we see it in Cuba. That's exactly what's happening even as we speak, just like it happened you know, back in 1989 when people took steps to tear down the Berlin Wall. It happened before that in Poland. We see it in the last year or two happening in Hong Kong. These were things that, that didn't happen solely because of Ronald Reagan. In fact, one of his great partners was Pope John Paul II, who right. growing up in Poland understood that. But, but he pointed us in the right direction. He was that aspirational leader who wasn't just talking about Republican policies. He was talking about American principles and freedom for opportunity is, is exactly what we should be talking about today. Um, I want to talk about a series we're doing out in the Reagan Library. Uh, we discussed this not too long ago when we got together in, in D.C. at the Reagan Institute. Um, this is the Time for Choosing series, of course, going back to that iconic speech President Reagan delivered in 1964 in support of Barry Goldwater, but of course laid out the foundations uh, for Reaganism that, of course, continues to impact uh, conservatives and the country today. We had former Vice President Mike Pence speak recently, and, and he was both advancing traditional conservative principles, similar to the, the Sharon statement, but then added a few principles that he thought should be included uh, post-President Trump's presidency. And, you know, first one he mentioned was recognition that border security is national security. And of course, this is Simi Valley, so it all, uh, it's the red pocket and otherwise blue state in California, as you know. Second was that trade must be free and fair, putting Americans workers first. The third one, and we'll talk about this in a bit, that China is now the greatest threat to our prosperity, security, and values. But I want to focus on four and five. Fourth, that patriotic education is essential to the survival of liberty. And that was the line that got, in my estimation, the loudest applause, more so than border security and anything else they focused on. And then last, the fifth one is recognition that we, the Republican Party, are the last line of defense of the Constitution our American heritage of freedom. Uh, give me your riff on four and five, that patriotic education is essential to survival of liberty. And actually, President Reagan emphasized this in his farewell address. And then the fifth one, that Republican Party needs to be the party of the Constitution. Yeah. Well, I think the two go hand in hand. I mean, the, the, the bottom line, and obviously some of that 
reaction to the applause that people got might be because of the frustration over things like the 1619 Project, which has routinely, not just from conservative historians, but from historians across the board, uh, been uh, been disputed uh, because of the, uh, the out of context and some of the other challenges there. Um, patriotic education doesn't mean whitewashing. It doesn't mean uh, not acknowledging challenges that we've had, particularly with individuals uh, throughout our, our country's history. But it does give people a better understanding. Again, for the numbers we were talking about before, young people. Uh, if all you're hearing is one thing, if all you're being told um, is, is tearing things down, when I think of college campuses or, frankly, even places like Seattle or Portland increasingly these days, where you see agitators and protesters burning American flags, tearing down American flags, and then you look on the streets of Cuba or last year, the past year you've seen uh, all throughout Hong Kong, people yearning for freedom, carrying the American flag. Uh, you remember at the beginning of that farewell address, Reagan told that great story about the people in the boats out of, I think it was outside of Indonesia, coming up to the sailors saying, hey, you're freedom man. There's freedom man. And it was a great reminder. And I know growing up as a little kid uh, during the uh, late 70s, uh, how just uh, unproud we felt, how, how how worried we were, how unpatriotic things were. And then Ronald Reagan came in and made us feel uh, proud to be Americans again, not just because of him, not just because of his policies, but understanding what was a part of each and every one of us. So I think particularly with young people, getting a good understanding for who our founders were, what those founding principles meant, uh, getting an understanding of all the things that have happened, the 13th, the 14th, the 15th, the 19th amendments, all the great things that have happened. I mean, heck, we're the only major country in the world that fought a civil war over the uh, the ability to ensure that all people uh, have those rights that are guaranteed, not only in the Constitution, but endowed to us from our creator. So I think that's really, really important, which then ties into the, the other point that uh, my friend Mike Pence made, and that is uh, not just as Republicans, but as Americans, we need to have fidelity to the Constitution. Uh, we need to have an understanding of where it comes from and why it's so important and why there are the checks and balances. In Reagan's first inaugural address, one of my favorite lines that isn't often quoted, but about midway through, he said, we should all remember that the federal government did not create the states. The states created the federal government. It's it's things like that that come out of our founding documents, that patriotic education, and then are implanted uh, in the words of our Constitution that are so important for us to not only understand, but then to live by so we're not going to count that reference to the first inaugural and quote uh, against your lightning round. Uh, so we'll, we'll make sure you, you share another one with us. Let's migrate a bit over to Wisconsin. And, and obviously, uh, spent your life there, professional life there, served as governor for all those years. It's a very interesting state. It gets national attention now uh, with every presidential election. Actually, it gets national attention now with the election of the you know GOP leadership in the state, which I want to talk about. Uh, President Trump won Wisconsin in 2016 with 20 by 22,000 votes, roughly. I don't have the precise numbers in front of me. And then he lost Wisconsin in 2020 by about 20,000 votes. Tell us a little bit more about your state, your home state, and what about it makes it swing in such a narrow sense? And more broadly, why does a presidential election, at least in the past two elections, seem to reside or be determined by 
Wisconsin. Yeah, it is amazing. Uh, and I remember talking to Mike Pence on election night in 2016, talking about the numbers. I was in Ron Johnson's campaign headquarters at the time, and we were projecting Senator Johnson to be reelected. Uh, and then I called Mike up and, and told him, and he's like, wow, you know, the numbers look like we're going to carry Wisconsin uh, for uh, the Trump-Pence uh, ticket. Why is it like that? Well, it, it was even like that in 2000 to 2004. We were the closest blue state in America at that time, went for Gore and went for Kerry. But by uh, about on average, a vote uh, of one vote per ward on average difference between the candidates. So we have for quite some time, like a lot of other Midwestern states, part of the reason is what you have, it's a microcosm of America. You have big cities like Milwaukee and Madison. Uh, that are very Democrat. You have the suburbs of Milwaukee that are very Republican. You have rural areas that are historically uh, lean uh, more Republican, although some pockets, particularly around the Madison area and rural areas, uh, are much more government-employee driven, so a little bit more Democrat. And then the key battleground always has been for me and for the other candidates for president and other statewide offices have been the mid-sized industrial towns, uh, places where maybe there were unions, but they were very blue-collar, working-class jobs, and that's been the tipping point. And uh, so Wisconsin embodies all of those things that we see all across the country. And in cycles now where you see a pretty much a lock on a certain number of red states and a lock on a certain number of blue states, it's a handful of states, many of which, almost the majority of which are in the middle, the, the heartland of America. Sure. Uh, that's incredibly important. And part of the reason why I think it goes back to the Midwestern values uh, whether it's Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, I'd even include a little bit of Pennsylvania and, and certainly Iowa along with Wisconsin. It's those very independent voters that they might lean one way or the other, uh, but they spend their time listening, they spend their time soaking in things, they take their civic responsibility very seriously. Uh, and that's why it has been and will continue to be close in Wisconsin. Do you think Donald Trump plus a dose of optimism, meaning a less negative Trump, would have been the right recipe to win Wisconsin in 2020? Yes, I there's no doubt about it. I think the ideas, we showed it. We won three elections right. uh, four years there. We, we showed, in fact, I, I carried in my recall, just as an example, um, about 11 to 12 percent of the electorate that voted for me in the recall in 2012 voted for Barack Obama, which ideologically makes no sense, no sense <laughs> whatsoever. But it was because they they wanted people. There's a you know a swing of persuadable independent voters. Not just even moderate, but just independent persuadable voters who who want leaders who have a vision for the future. It may not always be consistent uh, ideologically, but they want people who've got a vision for the future. We had it. Uh, I think you know I didn't agree with it, but I think many voters thought Barack Obama had it in 2012. Certainly the same kind of folks that voted for Ronald Reagan and for many years, for guys like Tommy Thompson. And uh, I think that's the key going forward. The ideas that Reagan had, even the ideas that Donald Trump had for his four years in office are overwhelmingly uh, popular. But part of it is to, to get over the hump is articulate it in a way that can appeal to the broadest uh, portion of voters possible. Let's stick a little bit longer, Wisconsin, just so fascinating to get your perspective all those years. And it's such a consequential state as we we're discussing nationally. You know, independence of the Wisconsin voters, certainly my sense of things, uh, and schooled by you and uh, someone like Congressman Gallagher, our former Speaker Paul Ryan, friends of ours who obviously involved day to day in, in Wisconsin. That independence showed itself recently where uh, the state party was, was looking at uh, the state assembly speaker, Robin Voss. Many thought 
uh, because of the stance he took. He said, oh, well, I'm going to certify and, and, and uh, the election in 2020 and, and think that the result was was correct, that Trump lost in Wisconsin in 2020. Uh, there was going to be some sort of uh, a referendum on him vis-a-vis uh, -vis the position he took, and he won. Uh, and, and so those who uh, took the position of Donald Trump that somehow it was it was stolen, at least seemed to be rejected with uh, Robin Voss uh, recently. Um, is that a reflection of the independence of the Wisconsin voter? Well, I think it also goes back to the point that you raised earlier, uh, asking about that speech at the library about the Constitution. And, you know, we, we as Americans, but particularly those of us who are conservatives and Republicans, should be following the law in the case of Speaker Voss and other state lawmakers in Wisconsin. I, I remember talking even post-November election when people were asking from Washington, they said the, they're following the law. Uh, the law clearly spelled out. Were there issues raised, particularly about absentee ballots, that raised questions in Wisconsin? There's no doubt about it. Uh, there were over 200,000 for which you could question uh, whether or not the law was strictly followed in terms of either asking for an absentee ballot in writing or filling in the, the document uh, appropriately with things like the person's home address. Uh, those are things that certainly need to be looked at and corrected going forward. Those were legitimate concerns that people could have raised in the courts at the time. Ultimately, the state Supreme Court chose not to hear it, but but the, the lawmakers, the speaker and others, were uh, obligated to follow the law in the state, and the law spelled out how elections run, whether you're, it was four years earlier and Trump won, whether it was this time and what happened there, or whether it was a statewide election uh, for any other office. So bottom line is, I think that's why you saw the speaker continue to hold the role that he is uh, or has. Uh, because he followed the law and he, he explained that to people. Much like Mike Pence, I think, you know, sometimes you'll hear pushback there as well. You know, as much as I would have liked a different outcome, because I didn't want uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to be elected, uh, the bottom line was Mike Pence, if you actually believe in the Constitution, and I think one of the biggest strengths of Donald Trump's presidency was putting men and women on the bench who were highly qualified and who upheld the Constitution, who weren't activists, who didn't make the Constitution do something they wanted, but rather upheld it the way that it's written. Well, if that's the case, you go back and read what the uh, the uh, obligation is of the, the Vice President of the United States, who's acting as the President of the Senate, when the Electoral College is intact. In it's basically to, to take the, uh, the Electoral College votes from the states, to open them up, and to count them. It's, it doesn't give you any discretion. And I think that's yeah, probably well, point on the Constitution. Mike Pence certainly made that clear and, and followed. I think it clearly lines up his conduct uh, in terms of certifying electors uh, and what he said at the Reagan Library. Right. Certainly lines he's up saying he, with, didn't, he didn't like it. He didn't like the outcome, but he's obligated to uphold the Constitution. I think that's just one of those important things. It's a great reminder for us, regardless of party. And it goes back to the importance of the Constitution and patriotic, patriotic education is um, if we hold the Constitution, uh, to be the ultimate authority uh, on all issues legal, then we need to follow it, whether we always- It lays out those roles and separation of powers is there and it needs to be followed regardless of outcome. We only got a few minutes left, but that was a, a great discussion on Wisconsin politics. Uh, we're gonna get to the lightning round in just a minute, but do need to get your, your riff or latest take on the Biden administration. Uh, you've written uh, regularly, um, and talk regularly about your concerns about the Biden administration. What's top of mind for you right now in terms of what you're seeing out of the White House? Well, I just hope we have stronger leadership. Again, obviously, that's one of the things I like most about Ronald Reagan. But I look at the world. I look at what's happening in Cuba. And I was appreciative 
uh, that uh, that Joe Biden came out and said, you know, we need to stand with the people in Cuba. But I, I think it's important to understand why it, it's 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 not just anything happening. It it is the failures of communism and socialism in that country that have led people to be at the point they're at in a larger national security sense. Something I know you're acutely aware of. When I look at uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, uh, I'm very concerned because I want to make sure that regardless of party, that America, American leadership is viewed as being strong. Former Secretary Gates, who worked for both Bush and Obama, has raised legitimate concerns about that. He's, he's concerned about the appearance to those two leaders that were weak. I would say we're not weak. The American people, the American people are not weak. It may be that we're too deferential in our leaders in Washington, but we need to send a strong, strong message uh, to Russia, uh, to China, to other places around the world uh, that uh, you know we seek peace through strength. We're not going to look for a fight, but we're not going to back down for one either. Speaking my language, got one more before we go to the lightning round because you mentioned China. You're talking about freedom. Of course, well, we're going to have the Olympics, not this coming Olympics in Japan, but the one after uh, in China. Um, this is at a time when, when China is persecuting Uyghurs within China. They've uh, essentially, through their national security law, have taken away freedom uh, from the people of Hong Kong. They're threatening Taiwan, yet we have American corporations uh, and and a decision by the American government to decide to what extent we're going to embrace uh, the Olympics in China and give the Chinese Communist Party this propaganda platform. Just through my question, you see where I yeah. am on the matter. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious on your view, if you were sitting in the White House, uh, Governor Walker, if 2016 would have bounced differently and, and you'd be starting your second term, how would you approach the upcoming Olympics in China? Well, I, I mentioned this in the brief amount of time I was in the presidential race. I actually told, suggested that Barack Obama cancel a state visit that, uh, that Xi Jinping was having to Washington. Because remember, at the time, it, there was clear evidence that uh, China-involved influences had hacked into OMB, which is one of our most important agencies in the federal government. I don't know how you reward somebody with a state visit by that. Same goes for this. I don't see how you uh, reward one of the, the biggest threats to freedom and opportunity and to our national security uh, by just blindly going into the Winter Olympics there. Uh, I think you got to pull uh, at least American athletes out and I think encourage American and global businesses that do business in America not to participate. Uh, these aren't something from hundreds of years ago. This is happening right now where you've got detention camps for people who are religious and ethnic minorities in that country. You've got all the things going all the way back even to Tibet, uh, certainly the problems in Hong Kong. And now I really worry if, if we don't take any noticeable action prior to the Olympics, I, I think it is highly likely, if not certain, that China will move aggressively towards Taiwan and put our allies like Japan and South Korea in a bind as well. And if we don't act, if we're not strong in that, I think you'll start to see a total realignment of others in that region, including even New Zealand and Australia, away from deference towards the United States. And they'll turn to the alpha, alpha dog at that point, which will be China and the China Communist Party. So we've got to do something. Sitting on the sidelines is no longer a plausible option. We've got to be strong, just like Reagan was. We got to push back. This is our Reagan at Reykjavik moment. Well, a, a principled uh, perspective there, and one that we're certainly going to focus on and spend more time on here uh, on the Reaganism podcast. Uh, 
we're going to stay on schedule and we're going to jump to the lightning round, even though there's so much more uh, I wish to discuss with you. So perhaps we'll have you back on in the future here. But for the lightning round, share with our viewers and listeners your favorite book on President Reagan, your favorite speech by President Reagan and your favorite Reagan quote. Give us all three, two or just one. But I'm thinking you got all three. Yeah, when character is king, Peggy Noonan, one of my favorites, although Dinesh D'Souza's book on Reagan from years ago, really impressive. In an American life, you read his words himself. How much better does it get than that? Uh, I think a Three books is, right there, very quick. That might be a record for the lightning round. Amazing. Yeah, okay, go on. I think a speech is uh, certainly a time for choosing, uh, but I still think that uh, that last farewell address out of the Oval Office where he was so prolific really forewarning us and, and warning parents going into the 1990s how they that that spirit of patriotism had to be reinstitutionalized and in terms of a quote you know obviously things like tear down that wall many of the quotes from a time for choosing but i would say best of all one i've used often uh, and that is uh, when he said and repeated often uh, that freedom's never more than one generation away from extinction we don't get it passed on to us through the bloodstream we have to stand up and fight for it and defend it and then pass it on to the next generation to do exactly the same thing. That's why I'm at YAF, and that's why it's so important to work with our young people. Governor Scott Walker, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, congrats on all the great work you're doing at YAF, and look forward to more collaborations and having you back on in the future. Absolutely, thanks for having me on.